Hello, hello, my name is Michael, and I welcome you to What's Your Career, where careers are examined one at a time. Today, I get to welcome a very special guest, my uncle, Kells Goodman. Kells is a film director, which is a career he has crafted for himself starting with nothing. His 30-year career has taken many twists and turns, and he has gained a wealth of experience from it. Kells has worked the system and made a name for himself, which is something I believe all of us are striving for. He is finally in his prime years, and I believe you can get there too. If you are in an entrepreneurial-type career, listen in. Kells has priceless advice for you. With that, let's jump to the interview. Kells, welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Michael. It's good to hear from you. Yeah, you too. For for the listeners out there, Kells is my uncle. And <laughs> I think everyone in the family at one point has wondered about your career and what you do and what it's like. And so I'm I'm here to finally ask those questions. And so hopefully all the family can listen to the to this podcast and they can get some more insight as to what your career has been for the last several years and even a couple of decades. So I'm excited to be here with you. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And yet it is that burning question, I admit it. So <laughs> people are wondering, what exactly are you doing, Kels? So, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, yeah, so this will be fun. This will be fun. Yeah. So to get us going, uh, I guess, what's what's your job title? Uh, it would actually be a film producer. Um, and the reason why it's a producer is because uh, I have a tendency to play many roles. And, uh, you know, if you're a director, this is the film business that, that I'm in. And if you're a director or if you're a writer or if you're somebody who runs a camera or something, that's a specific title, but if you're a producer, that kind of like encompasses all those titles because a lot of times a producer hires all those people. And if they don't hire them, they may have to jump in and play the, a role here and there, but ultimately they become a producer. And so at oh, this point nice. in time, I call myself a, a film producer or a video producer. Okay. I've got a lot more questions related to that, but we'll get, we'll get to yeah. those. Understood. Um, and how many years have you been a film producer? Um, I've been uh, in the film business for about uh, 30, just over 30 years that I've been doing that. And and is that basically since you graduated high school or college? Yeah, it was uh, since I, I was able, I started getting paid work. Uh, about my second year in college. And so I was already kind of had one foot in, one foot out. Um, I was kind of eager to to start working. And so, yeah, so in the, in the late 80s, I started uh, making money probably about 1990s when I actually started. I didn't graduate till about 92 in college. Okay. So. okay. Awesome. And uh, from one to 10, how would you rate the the function of of your job what the what you do of your job well that's a good question <laughs> um i i would probably say i'd probably say a seven okay do that because there's always room for improvement with the work that i do all right but but you still like it you're still you know pretty okay. satisfied pretty happy it's what you want to be doing yeah. I, I love it. And it's kind of a strange, I mean, we'll go more into it, but it's kind of a, kind of an interesting type of work because it is a, it is tough financially and you have to mm. be able to know how to, you know, there's, there's a lot of love to the work that I do and you have to know how to balance it. And it's taken many years to figure out the financial side of it. And uh, that's the part that a lot of artists, artists are terrible business people. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I I get that. I totally <laughs> understand. And I, I am curious to learn more about, about the financial side of, of what you do as well. So that'll be fun. And then how would you how would you rate your happiness with your career? I would say I would probably say seven as well. Mostly because okay. yeah, I'm I'm like I said, I'm still just wanting to do better all the time. And I always look back and go, Oh, I could have done that better. So yeah, about probably about a seven. Okay, perfect. All right, so take take me back a little bit. Go back to those the, those years in college when you just got started. How did you know this is what you wanted to do? 
Well, you know, what's funny is um, what I want, when I knew what I wanted to do actually went further back. It went back to the days uh, in the late seventies when I was um, it's funny because a lot of film guys that are my age, uh, you know, I'm in my early fifties, early, early, early fifties. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, I was Star Wars when Star Wars came out in 1977. I was 10 years old, and and somebody told me recently that a lot of people uh, that are my age got in the business because they were bit by the Star Wars bug, and so you'll see a mm. lot of filmmakers. In fact, J.J. Abrams is my age, and he, you know, they all are. You see this wave of filmmakers that are just around. The, my age, because they were bit by the Star Wars bug, and then they turned around and said, "Ooh, I want to be a part of that." And so, so back when I was ten, I knew right then and there, and I bugged my parents uh, for equipment over the years. And uh, and back then, it was you know it was the old film reels that I had to work with, and and living in South Texas, and Hollywood is far away. Uh, all I could do is read magazines and learn what I wanted to do. Uh, and so that was the only way I could figure out how to do it was, was see what it showed me in magazines and, and in little behind the scenes clips. But this is before DVD, this is before the internet. And so we kind of had to figure it out the hard way. And so I went from filming on the old film reels, little home movies with my dog, sure. and my friends and, and then, uh, and then eventually going to college, and I went to Brigham Young. And the reason why I went to Brigham Young was because Brigham Young University in Utah had a um, wonderful film program uh, that was probably one of the better ones to go to if you didn't want to go to California, you know, to one of the big sure. CLA or one of one of those. And I really didn't want to. Um, because I knew that there was probably a flood of people going in. So I decided to go to BYU and they had a wonderful, they had, a, they had a program and they had equipment and the equipment was all, a lot of their equipment was donated from Disney. And wow. so I, I, when I learned that I went, Oh, I've got to go check out this equipment and learn how to use it and, and, uh, learn the skills of filmmaking so I went to BYU in the late '80s, and uh, and then I started, and then and then into the early '90s. I graduated in '92, and uh, and then I started working on uh, films such as uh, TV shows such as Touch by an Angel. I worked on Touch by an Angel in the early '90s. Um, I started I started getting you know meeting people and getting onto these uh, shows where I did lighting. And uh, and I did uh, set design, um, and it was it was it's a hard business because uh, you know you're gone many hours, and so during that time I kind of learned I was starting to figure out that this was not going to be a normal job. I started to realize that this was going to be something that um, you're either going to sell your soul for, <laughs> or you're going yeah. to you're going to have to find a way to to control that monster or you're going to not work at all. And, uh, yeah. and it's a, it became a tough situation. So, yeah, let me, let me dig into that a little bit more because most of the people I talk to are employees, right? They work eight to five or nine to five with occasional travel or weekends and things like that. Correct. Have you, have you ever been an employee or has your work always been contract work or, or, or part-time or gig work? Yeah, uh, contract work is pretty much 90% of the film business. I have been employed once, and I'm going to, I'll go into that in a, in a minute. But, uh, but for the most part, uh, all my work has been contract and from friends. And, and it's, and it's had to evolve because as I got older, I got tired of being the guy that moves all the equipment, you know, and, and start getting more into the person directing and the person writing or, or uh, hiring other people, and so it's it is very contract heavy. It is a lot like building a house, or it is like sure. of construction where where you you do it, you build it, and then it's over and it's done, and then you have to move on. But then through the years, 
I had to start realizing that I couldn't just, that I had to stop just being the guy who does the one thing over and over. I have to be the guy that eventually owns the building. And then I start to make real money. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of a lot. That's what the film business would be a lot like, but I've been, I've been employed once and, and, uh, it was a sweet job and it was with Blendtec. And, uh, that was, that was an amazing job. I did that for about, uh, almost 10 years that I worked at Blendtec. Wow. 10 years. And, and you were just a regular, you know, nine to five employee, but you were focused on film still right correct yeah my actually my actual title with uh with blendtec was uh video producer and and at the time this is 2005 now blendtec was uh had no marketing they had some in the 90s where they they had made an infomercial in the 90s but beyond that they had very little marketing and most of their business was done uh, through, they were kind of second under Vitamix. You know, Vitamix was the number one blender, and Blendtec was kind of crawling behind them. And Blendtec eventually um, got into commercial. Most of their work was commercials, about eighty percent commercial sales. And so I was part of the marketing, the what what was kind of the small marketing department, which was really me and a marketing manager and uh, a web designer and that was it and so when we were hired my actual job was to produce training videos and i remember when i got the job i remember thinking oh well this is going to last one to two years max because how many more how many how many videos can you make about blenders right i mean that's (laughs) that's going to get boring (laughs) real fast and uh so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so and so they had, uh, but they had they had a lot of blender dispenser units that were complicated, and so it was my job to make it simple for uh, the user at restaurants like Jamba Juice and things like that, so that they'll be able to um, they'll be able to know how to use them. So I produced those, and while I was working. Uh, doing those, uh, my marketing guy, who was also new, we were both hired at the same time. Okay. They were, they were talking about doing an infomercial. And the reason why uh, the infomercial was, was a good thing at that time was because um, a Blendtec blender is a $400 product minimum. And, uh, and yeah, that's an expensive blender. It is. It's it's very. I mean, you can get a you know sixty dollar one at Walmart and just get the same job done. But but a Blendtec is a lot like um, a, a little giant ladder. Now, if you've heard of little giant ladders, that's also a four hundred dollar thing. You know, toy. I guess that you could buy a sixty dollar alternative, but it lasts right. longer and it does all these other things. And so they would, so they had a very successful run with little giant ladder infomercials. And hmm. so we thought we should do the same because that's what, uh, that's, we're in the same, you know, category. Um, so we started to plan it out. In fact, we were using uh, the group that does the uh, prep work for, for the little giant ladder. We were, uh, we were there to, to get started on doing an infomercial. And then one day out of the blue, uh, our owner of the company who invented the blender, he's very, he's, he's very entrepreneur, huge ADHD owner, you know, this guy, he's an inventor type, you know, he's, uh, he's got a great personality. And one day he was, we were watching him test his blender and the test was, was a two by four, gnawing it down to sawdust and these are very powerful blenders and and that was kind of the selling point of this blender was was this power that it had um along with the other features and he was so good and he was so caring about wanting the best he always wanted that he was going to do whatever he could to make the best product and eventually he um we decided to film him testing crazy things in the blender. And so we ended up uh, testing oh, a, a rake handle uh, and <laughs> ended up testing a, a set of marbles. 
and oh. we ended up testing a whole big Mac meal. Like we stick the whole meal in it and uh, we tested um, just, we did a number of tests one day and then uh, my web guy said, hey, you ought to stick it on this new thing called YouTube. And yeah. uh, so we put it on YouTube and it be and and it shocked people. You know, all of a sudden we were getting 10,000 views. And I thought, is that 10,000, one person watching it 10,000 times? Or is that 10,000 actual views? Sure. And we realized that it was 10,000 people watching it. And we went, wow, that's that's pretty impressive. I'm curious as to who's watching this crap. And and uh, well, then we decided to to have fun with it and we put music to it and, and made them short. You know, we made them one minute to, you know, 90 seconds. And we eventually um, started blending things on a regular basis. So every week we start putting out and we called it Will It Blend. That was our show. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I, I got to ask you real quick on yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Marbles. I mean, that. I, I can picture putting marbles in a blender and turning it on. And that just sounds like shards of glass going everywhere. Right. I mean, that sounds horrific. Did it actually work? Could you blend yeah. up marbles? Oh yeah. Actually marbles are actually one of the easier in a blender. Like it's actually e like if you stuck a, say a newspaper in there, it would be harder to blend because, because it's, it's flimsy and it just, it just gets caught and, you know, or if you put, uh, say, uh, asparagus in it or something like that, unless it's hard enough, it's 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 hard to to blend unless you have it, you know, chopped down in harder pieces. A uh, so mar so hard. The blade of a Blendtec blender is hard. You can touch it, and it's not pointy at all. And it's something where speed and the hardness of the blade are his secret to being able to destroy things uh you know hmm. to a point to to make them micronized and so so yeah so yeah and so yeah and when we when we did blend it it was it was one of those things where he had to uh you know he he would open the lid but he would ask people to not breathe it because it, you would get silicosis if you breathed you know after the smoke would come right out. yep and, yep um, so i assume you had quite a bit of success then it sounds like with those will it blend uh i guess did you did you do infomercials with that or did you just yeah. go on youtube and get popular that way we never we never did it we ended up ditching the infomercial because we found out that we were uh we went from getting ready to spend a half million dollars on an infomercial campaign to spending 50 bucks and just saying let's blend some crazy stuff and then sticking it on YouTube, and then we started getting seen. So we were getting a different different audience, a different set of views. It took a while because um, we had to, like, like our views really started going up when we started co-branding. So we, when we blended, mm -hmm. we started blending an iPod because this was before the iPhone came out. When we blended an iPod, then our views went into the millions. And, and we got to the point to where we were doing a million views a day. Just every day, we were number one for a good three years uh, on YouTube. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, it was, and it was done at a time, you know, today, if you were to get uh, a lot of views on YouTube, you would have to pre-engineer it. You know, you would have to find the algorithm and, and get it done. Yeah. When, we, when we do it, when we did it back then, it was raw. There was no... I'm sure there were algorithms, but they, they weren't as defined as they are today. It was more shock. It was the shock of seeing things destroyed. And then when the first iPhone came out, we blended the iPhone and then we were well known. Then all of a sudden it was everywhere. And, and it became, you know, we were on the tonight show and we were on the today show and we awesome. were, we were on all these programs doing our little, you know, shtick. When really all we were trying to do was sell blenders, we weren't trying to start a YouTube channel, and uh, and it became one of the best jobs I had because then it it turned this kind of accident, so to speak, into a an actual marketing genius that that now my job evolved from filmmaking into marketing, and right, and so that's that's what I tell filmmakers now is that young filmmakers that. They need to focus on marketing 
and not so much on whether their film looks good, even though that you, you want that you want, you know, good looking films, but, but it really comes down to the marketing of what you're, what you're producing. And, uh, and we all use marketing, you know, we all, are yeah, using. absolutely. And so, yeah, so we became number one and we were the number one, uh, we kind of helped define viral marketing. Uh, if you go to college today and you study viral marketing uh, of any kind using YouTube, we are one of the first examples that's used now. And uh, we've heard a lot of people talk about it and, and Blendtec would, they constantly call me back and I talk to people about, you know, uh, how we did it and what we did. And, um, you know, it became it became a shift in my career that was very telling and actually helped me uh, help put a stamp in, in what I was doing. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's an awesome story. And that's cool that you were able to be such an integral part of that. Uh, but I got to ask, I got to take a step back and ask this question. And that's, you know, being the entrepreneur that you are and the, the kind of free spirit and, and you know, contract based worker did you feel tied down by by being an employee in this sort of situation or did you just thrive in the environment yeah actually um i enjoyed it for a while um until and i did actually get to make a few movies while i was working at blendtec they really gave me some freedom once willet blend became a, a a regular uh, then, uh, because we still had other videos to produce for Blendtec, we still, even though Will It Blend became a full-time career practically, um, we also had to produce all the other videos that I was hired to do. It's kind of like we forgot those for a while and decided oh, so to get back to doing those. But uh, I, I did feel tied down a little bit. And then eventually in 2013, I, I left Blendtec for more than for numerous reasons, one of them was also the fact that they were having a change of the guard there, and Will It Blend was kind of not, you know, it, it was not important anymore. And um, right, and they were they were they had a change of the guard there at Blendtec, and and I just decided, you know, well, I think I think it's time to go pursue some new things. Yeah. So, so what uh, have you done since 2013? Hmm. Let's see, that's about seven or eight years. Um, what, what are kind of the top two or three things you've, you've been working on since then? Well, um, probably one of the things I did was I bought a film festival and, um, I, uh, okay. Film, yeah, I know. That's kind of a crazy move. <laughs> that, that's not something you hear every day. I mean, yeah. you know, most people, I don't know, maybe many, maybe many do, but probably a lot of people haven't even heard of a film festival and to think that there's an owner of a film festival is, you know, even more interesting. So that's, that's awesome. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Well, one of the uh, film genres that I participated in was, uh, was uh, Mormon cinema in the, in the faith, Mormon faith. Uh, we, you know, the, around 2000, uh, there were kind of became this explosion of Mormon cinema where a lot of, um, uh, Mormons who were filmmakers were starting to make movies that were positive about their faith, whether it was about missionaries or whether it's about the history of the church or whether it be, you know, Book of Mormon related or something like that. There became this sort of religious uh, explosion of movies. And you also see the same in the faith-based world uh, with movies like God's Not Dead and Fireproof Facing the Giants. So in the last 20 years, there's kind of been this explosion in religious uh, material. And now with the Internet, you've been able to see um, it segregated. You know, you can some of these movies might play in the theaters and, and they might do pretty good. Um, but then there's also all the other places where they can perform, you know, on streaming. And so right. th this film festival was known as the LDS Film Festival, the Latter-day Saint film festival and uh and it was something that i purchased uh from a friend who had been running it for 15 years and had a good track record and i had volunteered there for about 10 and i knew it very well and it became a thing where i i could see making changes to it to make it more profitable and so i went ahead and took a chance and bought it from him and the owner had to was from austria 
and he had to move back to Austria and it made it hard for him to, to do that. So I took it over. And the nice thing is, is it, it, the festival is right here in Utah where I live and it's at a, um, at a theater that's right down the street from me. And so, and so it, every year we have this festival, but we also do a few things during the, during the rest of the year as well. And it became fairly profitable, mostly because we kind of learned to reverse engineer the system when it comes to uh, uh, showcasing movies, because the movies need a place, they need a home to showcase to their audience. And so it's my job is to bring the audience with the filmmaker, especially movies that have never been seen before and may rarely get seen again, but at least they get to to see it with an audience so that they can uh, get feedback, you know, from, from real people who are not filmmakers. Yeah. And so, so would you consider this your, your full-time job then running this film festival and connecting, I guess, movie makers with, with the festival and showcasing everybody's work? Is that, is that your full-time gig or is that just on the side or it's, how would you it's, categorize that? Yeah, it's, it's seasonal. And so I don't, uh, I don't do it full-time. I, I am back to producing. In fact, I just sold the festival this year. Uh, so I built it up, you know, made it, you know, a little better and then I sold it. And so now I'm back to making movies again. And mostly because, uh, I've been able to figure out the system. Um, and I, I use the phrase reverse engineering. And I think a successful filmmaker is one who can reverse engineer their films because then they know how to uh, make money on these things and, and actually make uh, residual income. Because there's several ways, uh, like a house, like we talked about building, you can either be the guy that lays the carpet or you can be the guy, you know, and get really good at laying the carpet. Or you can yep. be the guy that that owns the building and that rents the building and that makes money on the building or sells the building and, and turn around and do it again. And so that's kind of where I'm at now. And that's why my role is more now just producer, because now we're making, we're making some new product. Uh, the new film I just did recently is called quarantine for two. And it's a love story I did last uh, fall where two people meet, and it's a it's a real hallmark kind of film, and uh, two people meet online, but they can't be together because they're quarantining, and uh, and it becomes this love story, and it's written by a well known author, and so uh, and so in that business, we're able to uh, you know to again reverse engineer, find out how much we think we can sell, find out how much the price is to make this film. And then turn around and say, okay, we're going to make a film at this price because we know we already have a buyer. And so, and so that's kind of, we're now plugged into a system where we're able to produce a film and get it done in, in record time than Hollywood ever can. And we can, we can have it finished and released uh, in just literally a matter of months. And then we can just turn around and do it again. Oh man, I have so many questions, Kels. This is awesome. This is really cool. So let's let me just try to poke around at some of these questions real quick. So okay. do you have I guess have you ever had employees or do you hire people to help with the film and do you hire the actors? Um, you know, how does all of that come together to make a film? Sure. Um I have uh, a pool of people that I pull from oh, from years of working um, you know, in the beginning, I had to kind of learn who everybody was, but having been here for 30 years, that's kind of become, you know, I have, it's been big, pretty easy, you know, every time we're like, oh, we know, we know who'd be great for camera and we know who'd be great for lighting and, and we knew who, we know who would act in this. So, so, so the crew side, the non-acting side yeah, is, is pretty easy. We, there's not much as far as interviewing needing to be done. But when we go into the, uh, you know, so those there's a pool of friends that I that I pull from that I work with from project after project, and as long as they're available, and if they're not, I have a B backup, and and they usually work on a day to day basis. You know, they they'll they'll charge me contract rate, day half day type setting, or or if it's a budgetary issue, 
we might say, hey, I'm going to have you work for a whole week and then they'll give me a week rate, you know, depending on whatever works for them. Well, because I want to make sure they're taken care of. And then actors, we usually have to go through a casting situation where uh, we bring a couple of pages from the script that we're shooting and we have them read it with another actor. And then we we have a casting call where we get a room and we we um, bring people in at various times and have them try out. Uh, and then if the, if it works out, if they're hired, then then we go ahead and, and uh, work with their agent. Most of them will have an agent uh, that okay. they can work with. And there's and in Utah, we have there's probably about three or four main agencies that I might call and say, hey, I need a guy who's 60 years old, balding. And, you know, we're totally discriminating <laughs> when we're hiring <laughs> actors because we need a female and she has to be beautiful and blah, blah, blah. You know, so we're totally doing what what you can't do in the regular workplace when you're cool. ca casting actors. But that's that's how we do it. So. Well, I mean, that makes sense. So, yeah. I mean, if you're paying actors and you're paying the film crew, how are you getting paid? Well, uh, my pay comes from the sale of the film. And and I'm now at a point to where uh, I'm in a rare position that I usually tell filmmakers not to do. <laughs> okay. that, that is, I, I own my films. And so, so I set aside a certain amount of money, of my own money, and I... Uh, I say I determine how much a budget is going to be for a film, and then I go to a buyer. And this is part of the reverse engineering concept of it. Is sure. I go to I go to a distributor, and I have a number of distributors and buyers who have, uh, you know, they're looking for something. Uh, Hallmark is very big into this. Uh, Christmas movies uh, are really, you know, a hot item that are filmed here. And uh, and they're a lot of those movies, like I said, they're reverse engineered. They're they're looking for a specific type of thing and they'll pay for it as long as you've done a good job on it. And uh, and it fits the mold that they have. So then I turn around and go to my writer and uh, we determine what do you got for a script? And they say, hey, I've got this Christmas movie and it has a little girl in it and it has magic and it has or it has a, a, the same old story of, of a a woman who comes home and, and single and meets the old boyfriend and they fall in love and, you know, or what, I'm just using that as an example, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's, uh, you know, and so from that I can determine, Oh, okay. It's going to cost a certain amount of money. Sometimes you can make these, sadly, you can make them really inexpensive. Um, and, but sometimes quality may not be as good. So you try to beef it up a little bit. And so each time you, it's a little bit of an experiment. Oh, we're going to film it in the mountains, you know, with the snow, or we're going to go film it on a beach and that'll beef it up a little bit, or, uh, or we're going to put a celebrity in it that will just come in for sometimes a name will sell a movie. And so if we can, yeah. there's a pool of names of people who, who haven't really acted in a while, but they have been very busy because they're doing a lot of these smaller movies. They're not a list. They're like a minus list, you know, or a B list actor. Hmm. And and they'll and they'll come and work for you know five thousand bucks or whatever as long as their needs are taken care of and they'll fly in yeah. come for a day. So a lot of times you'll see these movies, these small independent movies, where they hire a, like a well-known name such as like Danny Glover is one who I, who's come to Utah, Kevin Sorbo, um, mm -hmm. uh, a few others that I can just think off the top of my head, uh, Margot Kidder who was Lois Lane and Superman. I saw her yeah. here in Utah working on a film once. And, awesome. And they just they just come for the days that they're needed and and their name is sold and they make a deal and and that's what sells it. And then they can turn around and, and sell it and then uh they'll either buy the film outright or they will just do a, a shared uh purchase, <clears throat> meaning you know they 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 can guarantee a certain amount of DVDs or they can guarantee a certain amount of views on a, on a channel. And so they'll know that it's going to, you know, you know, you'll make X amount of money back. And then you, once you return that back, you can turn around and do it again. You can make yeah. a movie and, and then occasionally you, occasionally you get a hit, you know, and that's what a lot of people aim for is they aim for that hit. They aim for that yep. one that sticks out. 
Okay, that's that's awesome, Kels. I've got a couple more questions for you that are roaring through my head right now, and that's one: um, what do traditional film directors do? You said you're kind of non-traditional, but I'd like to hear what that normal route is that you would recommend, maybe for a young, you know, eager f- film producer to to do. And then the other question I have is: where are your films produced, and are there a bunch of different locations or, or how do you produce it? I'd like to learn more about that side of things as well. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll answer the second question first. Okay. Uh, and that is that, that they're produced wherever. I mean, honestly, you could, I have filmed in my house. I've filmed, uh, you know, on a bridge. I've filmed uh, in uh, mansions and I've filmed at the Capitol and I've filmed Capitol meeting here in the state. And so really, honestly, it just, it kind of depends. Oh, but then we do have stages where if we need to do something on a green screen uh, or if we need to build a set, you know, we've, I've built sets before, especially historical things that I've done. Awesome. I, I did a documentary series where, where it required building a few sets and, uh, so that was that was fun. So yeah, really, pretty much anywhere as long as you got the insurance and the owner will let you be. So okay, <laughs> but, and then uh, and then to follow up with that, yeah, where do you? I guess where are your videos published? Your movies published? Well, yeah, uh, because a lot of the material I've done has been faith based. Um, they'll be published onto um, a few uh, faith based channels. Like there's one called Living Scriptures. And I did a series called Hidden in the Heartland, and it's playing very well on that one. I produced that five years ago, and I'm still making money on it. And awesome. And kind of, that's kind of the goal is to do as much content as you can, because then it'll make money for years and years beyond that. And if something happens, like if some interest comes on, uh, you can always revive your product. You know, you can always put a new package on it or remaster it and or play it in a new location. And so now some of the material I've done that's been faith-based, I actually recently found a new distributor and uh, they're looking at taking some of my material and repackaging it and putting it, taking it to a new place. And so, so yeah, so it's, it's meeting new distributors and finding new homes, but uh, living scriptures is one. Amazon prime is probably our number one place where all my stuff, okay. all, all my stuff is there because Amazon Prime is a great place that you can actually put your own stuff there. And so I probably make most of my money off of Amazon Prime. So, so you're quarantined for two movie. Have you, is that finished? Is that yeah. available to view today? Quarantine for two. It's, uh, it was picked up by the distributor and uh, the distributor has connections with uh, the church, the Mormon church owned bookstore, which has a new channel called Deseret Bookshelf. And Deseret Book is the is the bookstore that's well known in, in the uh, Mormon world, so to speak. But it also, uh, they started a new channel called uh, Deseret Bookshelf, which will be out in July. And they're using Quarantine for Two as sort of the new product one of their new ones that you can only see there for a while and then it'll eventually go to amazon prime and it's not a religious movie by all by any means it's uh i'm trying to do less and less of the religious religious material and more secular material and uh but they just because of my relationship with them they wanted to, to carry it yeah so so for that particular movie did you write the script? Were you are you very engaged in that side of it, or are you just strictly given the script and then you film it? In this case, um, I have a, 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 a woman that I work with. Her name is Jenny James, and Jenny James is a sort of a a love novelist, a teen love novelist kind of thing. I don't know what okay. you call it, but she has fifty books, and she's she's gotten really well known. She's got her own fan base. And so she is a selling point of, of the recent films. I'm getting ready to do another one with her. And she, uh, uh, so, so the quarantine for two was her project. And, and we, uh, she made the script. So she started screenwriting recently and she wrote a really good screenplay. 
during quarantine and we decided to take it and make it to a film and that's it's her it's the fact that it's her product is the selling point of the film uh, okay and so yeah so she's she's been i'm gonna start i have a few i it's a mix you know every time we do something that's either somebody else wrote it or i wrote it because i also will i don't consider myself a writer i only write when i need to <laughs> okay and so when i can't afford the writer at the time but, all right well that's that's awesome and this has been really informative to me i didn't know the majority of what you've what you've talked about and so it's cool to see how all those relationships have come together and who pays who and how people are hired and uh you know who ultimately you know is in charge of films because it, it feels like there's a lot of different pieces and parts and so you it it's been cool to learn what your role is and it sounds like you know at least in the last decade or so you've had a a pretty big role and that that sounds like that's exactly what you want with your career. Do you think you're in your, your sweet spot right now? Yeah, actually it's a good question. And yeah, I do. After 20 years of trying to figure it out and being the employee and trying to work and, and, you know, having dry years and heavy years and, and then finally being employed at Blendtec kind of gave me that boost financially. And then now we're kind of in a position where, um, I now call the shots. And so that, so I do feel like I'm in my prime. That's why I'm working as fast right now as I can <laughs> before I retire. And I'm hoping I never retire. I probably will be one that will never retire. Uh, as long as I can move and uh, I'll always be having my hand in some kind of project. And as long as it's making money, as long as we can do it financially. So, Well, that's awesome. So I'd like to take a step back now and, and look towards other people and maybe how have you helped other people along the way and how do you plan to keep helping people and you know young people in particular that want to be you in a few years and i'd like to hear maybe some encouragement or advice for for upcoming you know college students or maybe those in their 30s and 40s that want to switch careers yeah well thank you yeah i really think that um uh... Probably the number one thing, if, if anybody wants to get into any kind of filmmaking, I actually encourage them, and this is this is going to be, some people won't like this, but I encourage them not to go to a film school because the film school, the film part, you'll learn on the run. You'll be, if you have a knack for film and you know how to, whether it be you want to write or whether it be you want to be the guy running the camera, whether it be something technical or whether you want to be uh, directing actors or whether you'll be the one that's hiring everybody, eventually you will figure out through time what it is you want to do. What I highly encourage somebody new to do is to get a marketing degree. If they get any kind of college at all is to, is to get a marketing degree because then they, because that's ultimately what you're going to be using it for, whether you're going to be making commercials uh, you know, whether you're going to be doing something online, whether you're going to be doing um, marketing, you know, through social media uh, or anything, you, there'll always be that need for film in some form or fashion. And and I don't think a film degree that kind of limits you on just doing that. It's very it's a new world today. It's not like it used to be, you know, the old days. The traditional filmmaking that we were kind of talking about, a filmmaker would be somebody who just directs movies. That's all, all I do is just direct actors. Read, you know, I read the script, go through it, make notes, and I just direct actors. And if you're in Hollywood, that system still exists, but not everybody lives in Hollywood. And and I would I would say that there's more films now being made out of Hollywood than are in Hollywood, and they're doing them cheaper. And they're doing it more effectively. And as we can see through the pandemic, we can see Hollywood was probably the one industry that took the greatest hit. But what was ironic was a lot of my friends who could crank out the movies in a smaller fashion like I'm doing were still working. They were still putting hmm. out the movies and they were still surviving while Hollywood had to stop and shut down because it's the machine is so big that uh, that one little thing happens and they have to slow the machine down. And whereas when you're small, you can replace somebody quickly and you can move on and uh, yeah. or you can shift gears. Or if you're making a movie and you, 
you know, every move in movies like Marvel movies and stuff like that, every image, every shot, every move is so pre-planned and so pre, uh, you know, thought out that almost nothing is ever like improvised. And so, and, and because of that, there's so much caution in, in everything between the unions and, and the creators and so much, you know, there's so much money in, and that mm. becomes so difficult to just say, Hey, let's just make this. And whereas guys like me, I can just, you know, when I did quarantine for two, I literally read the script uh, with a friend while driving to New Mexico last summer. And then four weeks later, we, we were in production. We were making the movie. That wow. And then we were done with the movie by November. And so, you know, so we can, we can put them out quickly because we don't have to worry about a whole uh, litany of people having to approve everything uh, in every step of the way, like Hollywood does. Hollywood has so much, such a big machine to get stuff done. You think it's bigger is better and it's not, it's actually slows you down. Right. And I, I really like your advice there, Kells. I think, you know, a marketing degree is is very relevant. It's not something you would think of, but I, I actually heard recently that the majority of people aged like 20 and younger won't do a Google search. They'll go to YouTube and search for things. Yeah, that's which right. which just shows how much video we consume as a nation and all that video you know, it's got to have some sort of videographer, uh, you know, film producer in a sense that makes all of that stuff. So there's a lot of content out there that isn't necessarily traditional movies and films, but it is videography and it is, uh, you know, working in the film space that, you know, that isn't related to movies. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's so much of it is out there and, and, the guy with the most creative wins in this game. I mean, it's it's whoever's creative, whoever can get the most views, whoever you know. People, we have a we have a uh, here in Utah. We have a um, convention called CVX Live, and CVX Live is is started by the guys who did these um, videos where uh, kids talk and adults acted out. Uh, it's really cute. I forgot the name of the series, but it's. Uh, kids speak or something like that. I can't remember. I've, I've heard of that. I, I think I've seen a couple of them as well. And they have a convention every year where everybody who's done well on YouTube comes and speaks and talks about their experiences. And, uh, and they, they kind of learn the art of storytelling in a YouTube sense. And I'm kind of like the grandfather that shows up because <laughs> we, yeah. we were the accidental hit, you know, but now there's people that, that, and a lot of them, ironically, a lot of them are right here in Utah where they have, they now make a living. They'll, they'll make, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 bucks a month by putting out a video every week, showcasing their life. And that becomes their life is just making a video every week and uh, about whatever it is they're doing, whether they're traveling or whether they're building homes or whether they're showcase. There's a, company that there's a group of guys that now use my basement. I have this really cool basement with all of these uh, theater seats and all of the, and all the star Wars, I'm a star Wars collector. And so I have it all decorated and they use my basement to talk about cinema and therapy. One of them is a therapist and the other one is a filmmaker and they call it cinema therapy. And a, wow. year, a year ago, they started their channel and about six months into it and they were getting, they got a half of, they ended up getting a half a million subscribers and now they're practically making a living doing that show. And uh, wow. so you just never know those, those systems are there. They're in place. You just got to be creative with it. And it's, it's way different than going to Hollywood and learning to be a director or anything of that kind. So. Right. Different deal. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to, you know, recommend to the aspiring film director out there? Well, I just be creative and don't think you have to do it like Spielberg did it because those days while they're still here, they're the systems are different. And so those days are behind us. And uh, so, yeah, I think uh, just be creative, figure it out, 
but also you got to pay the bills. So you got to think not everybody's going to like what you want. So you got to make what they're going to like. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. And for most young people just trying to get their foot in the door, doing small contract work. Yeah. It sounds like a long road. You know, before you get a lot of traction, you're going to have to get to know a lot of people. You're going to have to do grunt level work. Yeah. A lot of it's the type of industry that requires, uh, you know, a long slog to get where you want in some cases. I'm sure some people yeah. become overnight hits, but yeah. most people, you know, it takes a long time to get this sort of specialized career, you know, on its feet. A lot of filmmakers have two lives they have their day job and then they have their dream thing. And their day job is would be perfect if you were like making commercials or if you were making training videos or if you, yep. you know, a camera guy or doing so that's, that's the day job. And then the dream job is I want to make my next movie and, you know, I want to be able to raise the money and, and, you know, but you got to think marketing, you got to think, you know, if you're going to spend money, it's an expensive hobby that my dad used to call it. Uh, you got to be able to reverse engineer and know whether it's going to make money if you're going to do it. So, right. So there you go. Okay. Well, Kels, this has been super enlightening for me, and I hope our, our listeners enjoy hearing your story and maybe feel a little bit more inspired to chase after their dreams. You've made a career out of your dream, and that's inspiring to to many who who have a job that they feel is is not their dream. So well done with your career. Thank you for talking to me. Um, how, can, how can people get in contact with you if they'd like to chat with you or if they'd like to see, you know, the, the work that you've done, the films that you've made? How could they get in contact with you? Sure. I have a website and it's uh, tier two media and it's tier, T-I-E-R, the number two media dot net. And that's the company name that I now operate out of. So tier2media.net, you can go there and you can see my bio and you can see the films. There's some samples of the last five years or so of material that I've done. And uh, and there's some video samples you can watch. So yeah, right there at tier2media.net. Awesome. All right. I'm sure we'll have a few people reach out to you. Hopefully, hopefully this uh, inspires people to reach out to you more because I know I'm inspired. That was, that was, uh, you know, enlightening for me. So thank you for your time, Kels. And uh, we'll, we'll catch you next time. Hey, thank you, Michael. Thank you. Good luck to you. 